Welcome to the historic Ocean House, a luxurious hotel that pays homage to New England's golden age of hospitality. With timeless elegance and renewed civility, this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series. Each program features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation, hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. You'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher-Murray, Kitty Curick, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with the Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to the Ocean House. I'd like to start by thanking the Ocean House for allowing us to come back for another year of wonderful author conversations with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. When you arrived, you should have received a, a copy of The First Ladies on Your Chair by Victoria Christopher Murray. If you'd like to purchase additional copies, any of Victoria's backlist or any of Deborah's page-turning thrillers, we have those available for sale at the table in the back of the room where our event host will be able to assist. And after the event, both Victoria and Deborah will be um, available to personalize books. The books you received are pre-signed. We put Victoria to work before <laughs> we brought her up on stage. Um, but we'll be able to personalize those after the event. This event is being recorded by WCRI for future broadcasts and podcasts. So please take a moment to silence your cell phones. Thank you in advance. So with all of that said, it's time for some introductions. Victoria Christopher Murray is the New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of more than 30 novels. Her latest novel, The First Ladies, which she co-authored with Marie Benedict, was an instant New York Times bestseller, as was Marie and Victoria's other novel, The Personal Librarian, which was also a Good Morning America book club pick. Victoria has received numerous awards over the course of her writing career, including the Phyllis Wheatley Trailblazer Award for being a pioneer in African-American fiction, she has also won nine African-American Literary Awards for Best Novel, Best Christian Fiction, and Female Author of the Year. She also won an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work for her novel Stand Your Ground, which was also named a Library Journal Best Book of the Year. Victoria's Seven Deadly Sins series has inspired four Lifetime original movies. She holds an MBA from the NYU Stern School of Business and lives in Washington, D.C. And for more information, you can find her website at victoriachristophermurray.com. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you. Thank you. Victoria will be in conversation tonight with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Deborah's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Reef Road hit Publishers Weekly's bestseller list, Good Morning America's top 15 list, and was an Indie Next pick by the American Booksellers Association for January 2023. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021, and Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's Best Of list in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband, Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, Ocean House Hotel, Deer Mountain Inn, the United Theater, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects in Rhode Island and the Catskills. Victoria and Deborah will now discuss Victoria's latest novel, The First Ladies. And after that, we will open it up to some questions from the audience. Since we are on the radio and on podcasts, I'll walk the microphone around so the audience listening will hear your lovely questions. And now, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Victoria Christopher Murray and Deborah Goodrich-Royce. 
Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you, Victoria. I'm going to ask you a completely unplanned question. You use three names. I use three names. Yes. Why do you? And I'll say why I do. Okay, that's a good question. So um, when I got married, I, my name, I grew up Victoria Christopher. And um, when I got married, I was a woman of the new 90s, you know, the 80s and 90s. And I kept my name. My husband's name was Ray Murray. And I kept Victoria Christopher because I was so sophisticated like that um, in New York. And then I became an author. And I said, I better put his name on the book so his family will buy the books too. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's how I became Victoria Christopher Murray. I knew I'd get my family and I'd get his family. And it just worked out perfectly, except it's too long to sign, but well, it works out. So my story is, is a little similar, but kind of the inverse. Back in the olden days, so long ago when I was an actress, I was Deborah Goodrich, which is my maiden name. And then in my years as a story editor, which is like a book editor in the mm -hmm. film business, when I worked for Harvey Weinstein, I was Deborah Porter. It was my first married name. See, so no one's ever going to track me down. <laughs> But when I started doing my own books, I thought I would like to kind of put together the pieces of my own mm. identity. I think a lot about identity. And so I put my maiden name back in, and I'm glad I did. Yeah, I'm really glad I yeah. did, too. My dad only had girls, and so mm -hmm. it's another way to honor my dad. Yeah, and, you yeah. Know, so got I that. I, so I love it. So we've digressed. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know who has read this wonderful book, but you will. So I always like to start with your kind of brief, brief precy of what this book what is about. What the book about. is about. Mm -hmm. So we call it The First Ladies because it's about uh, the first lady that you know, Eleanor Roosevelt, and another first lady that you may not know, Mary McLeod Bethune, who Eleanor called the first lady of the struggle. And it was about their friendship. They were not just friends. They were like best friends during the time of Jim Crow and segregation. And think about this. Eleanor was the first lady of the United States, and she and Mary couldn't even find a place to go and have lunch together because of segregation. Yeah. You begin the book in <clears throat> with a very powerful scene the book, one of the things that I love so much about it is you go back and forth. You see it's kind of a cinematic technique, seeing something from one point of view than another point of view, which is always so interesting mm -hmm. to spin it on its head. And this opening scene is a luncheon. And Eleanor Roosevelt's mother, Sarah, Sarah Delano. Delano Roosevelt, mm -hmm. has invited. It's, it's for uh, leaders of women's clubs from across the nation. And she's invited uh, a black American woman who is the leader of many things. And it takes you through the reaction of other women, very unattractive reactions of many other women in the room. But what really struck me is you set the tone instantly mm. of how confident Mary. Mrs. Bethune Mary. is and how opposite young Mrs. Roosevelt is. And talk a little bit about why did you decide to start there? And what does that give us as the reader? And so we started with that luncheon because that's actually how they met. They met because Franklin's mother 
knew Mary and wanted Mary to be included in this group of powerful women. She wanted to um, them there together. And so we knew how they met. We knew the reaction of the other women. Nobody else would sit down with her and eat. Nobody. But Mary, and this really happened, Mary said, that's their problem. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat this soup. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and that's, she didn't think anything of it because that's something that she had to go through all the time. Nice. Um, and so we thought it was perfect because that's what really happened. It was how they really got introduced. And that's what drew them together. Mary was very impressed with Eleanor not knowing what to do but rushing to her. And Eleanor was just very impressed that Mary sat down and ate the soup with no issues at all. Yeah. And that's what brought the two women together. Well, it kind of knocks your socks off as a beginning. It's a powerful scene. And then the fact that she held her own with no hesitation whatsoever. There's another aspect of her name. Uh, it is very important for her mm. to be referred to as Mrs. Bethune. Well, talk to us a little bit about why that is. Well, Mary McLeod Bethune was the 15th child of 17 children. She was the 15th, and she was the first one born free. 14 of her siblings were slaves, along with her parents. And she grew up on the plantation where her family had been enslaved. And she said from a very young age, she watched as she was being raised, and she was being raised to respect her elders and respect people. She watched little white children her age disrespect her parents and just call her parents Patsy mm -hmm. and Samuel. And at a young age, Mary said that was going to stop with her. Mm -hmm. that people, when she got old enough, people were going to call her Mrs. Mc, Miss McLeod or whatever her married name would mm -hmm. be. And it's, it's a very powerful moment in the book because we live in a casual era and it might not strike us. You know, often children in school call their teachers Heidi or Fred mm -hmm. or whatever. And it, it, it's very clear why it's important to her mm -hmm. and why it should be important to her because every white person mm -hmm. is being called Mr. and Mrs. whatever their yeah. names are. Uh, so there are all these moments like this in the book where in a very succinct way, you, you set a tone without belaboring it. We understand yeah. very clearly. Just from what, the yeah, behavior. Exactly. The, yeah, just from the dialogue. So talk about Daytona Beach of all places. That mm -hmm. surprised me that that was where she lived. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know much about that, and tell our, yeah. our audience about that. So another thing that was interesting about Mary McLeod Bethune is that education became very important to her. And she was about 10 years old when she told her parents, I want to go to school. And they were like, school? Nobody goes to school. We work this farm. We need all hands on deck. And she's like, I want to go, and I want to learn how to read. She was 10. And so her parents allowed her to go in the days that they didn't need her working on the plantation. And she walked three miles by herself there, three miles back. Because even at that age, she knew that education was going to be the key 
was going to get her out of it. And so coming out of that situation, she ended up graduating from elementary school, middle school, high school, got a college degree, and got an advanced degree. She got all of that. And then education was so important that she decided to start a school. That was the first thing she did. And she moved around in Florida and ended up in Daytona Beach. It was an um, inexpensive place for her to live. And she started the school with $1.50. Now, I don't even really care about inflation. $1.50 is $1.50 no matter the year, right? And she started the school in Daytona Beach, Florida. It was just a school for little colored girls. It was six girls and her son. But she wanted to really educate girls. And within one year, she had 200 students from that $1.50. And today, it's one of the top HBCUs in the country. It's Bethune-Cookman College, the Bethune-Cookman wow. University in Daytona Beach. That, I mean, that's just extraordinary. It's just ridiculous, right? She did a whole bunch of ridiculous stuff like that. And did you, did you know from a young age oh, about her? I did. You, did. you know, it's so funny because Marie didn't know much about her. And um, when we were writing The Personal Librarian, and we would go out, and we'd say, we're writing a book about Eleanor Roosevelt. And everybody would go, yay! And then Mary McCoppathune, and people would go like, you know, they don't want to yeah. say it out loud. Yeah. They just ask their neighbor, who was that? And they're like, I don't know. Um, I, I learned about Mary McLeod Bethune. I was probably about eight years old um, when I first read about her. She was the first person that I understood the concept of famous, but she was dead. So I, that's the first, she was the first person that I put those two things together. And I was so impressed with her because what I knew was she had a college. And I figured, I'm going to go to college, and one day maybe I'll have a college too, since she had one. Um, and that's all I knew about her was that she had a college. And as I grew up, I knew, became to know more and more. But I've always known about her. I just didn't know how much a bad woman she was. She was, she was amazing. And I didn't learn all the things about her until we started doing the research for the book. And talk about the research. Was information readily available on Mary? There was a lot of information available, because Mary was a celebrity in her lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, as you'll learn in the book, um, she changed America, uh, because the, the black, black voters at that time were voting Republican. Um, and she kind of started the shift, I mean, kind of forced the shift when she became friends with Eleanor and what she and Eleanor were going to do together. Um, and so she, um, she, she, she helped to change the country. Um, and that, those were just some of, the, uh, some of the things that I learned when I went down to um, Daytona Beach. I was able to go down to the college and so walk through all of the halls and everything of the school. Her home is on campus. Oh. She's actually buried on campus. Um, so I got to see all of that. So I was, that's a lot of firsthand experience of just living with it. Then there's a lot of information um, in books and people who've written, written about her. But the best piece of research we had was her grandson, who's a major character in the book. He self-published a biography about himself and his grandmother. 
So I knew everything down to her favorite dessert. I knew how he saw her and Mary, her and Eleanor. He called them two old ladies who would giggle like teenagers until midnight. Uh, and he said that just got on his nerves. He was about 16 years sure. old. Well, yeah. And he said, when you know Mrs. Roosevelt would come down, I knew that was it. They're gonna be up all night just giggling. Like they were teenagers. I mean, yeah. he said, and he said they were old ladies. That's how he saw them. Yes. And at what age would they have been then? She would have probably, Eleanor would have probably been in her 40s. Right. And Mary, <laughs> and Mary was in her early 50s. Right. You know, old and he, he was about 16, so he was like, they are way over the hill. They're about to be out. Uh, and he actually lived to about 96 years old. So oh, he, he he died right before I got down there. Um, and so I got to hear his, some of his wow. stories and, and things like that. So there was a lot of information. But one of the best pieces of information we had, um, and this is always good if you can get it when you're writing historical fiction, is the letters between the two of them. Yeah. I had, we had letters between Eleanor and Mary, and Eleanor asking Mary to do this, and Mary asking Eleanor to do that, and. Um, all kinds of things. That's really good because then you hear their voices. And we actually had heard a radio interview um, where Eleanor had Mary on her show. So we had heard their voices and how proper they were and just... Well, that's extraordinary because I'm going to use that as a jumping point. When I have authors here, or just even all the time, I love reading a book and listening to audio in mm -hmm. a combo. Mm -hmm. I do audio in the car. I cannot do audio in bed at night we because five hours later, <laughs> I have no idea what I've missed. But I loved the voices yeah. of the actors who did it. And it is a, a formal and old-fashioned cadence yes. pronunciation. It's beautiful. Yeah, the, beautiful. we got to pick the the people, That's great. which is good. And Robin Miles is the one who did Mary McLeod Bethune, and she also did The Personal Librarian. Okay. So people, and people love that. So she's really good. And I wasn't familiar with the woman who did Eleanor, but apparently a lot of people who listen to audiobooks are, was familiar. Okay. And she's amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the two of them together, just amazing. Really great. So speaking of two together, mm -hmm. this you write books on your own, mm -hmm. many, many. And you have this partnership with Marie Benedict. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how that started. How, how we met? Well, Marie has always done historical fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and she's been writing about women who've been lost in the folds of history for a long time. And I've been writing something very different. I write contemporary fiction like a, with the titles of lust, OK? <laughs> So now that's part of the seven deadly sins. So, but still, that's where I started was lust. And so when Mary was uh, when Marie was looking for um, new people to write about, she discovered Belle de Costa Green, and that's the main person in the Personal Librarian. And when she first heard about Belle de Costa Green, Marie did not know that Belle was black because she had passed for so many years. It wasn't discovered until the nineties. Um, that she was black. And when Marie discovered that she was black, she said, I don't know if I want to write that book by myself. She said, Belle had hidden her identity for so long, she wanted to write with a black author. 
Um, but the publishing industry, unfortunately, is really segregated. She didn't know any black authors. And she happened to read a book of mine called Stand Your Ground. Um, and my, that book was written from two perspectives, a black woman and a white woman. And after she read it, she said, wow, maybe Victoria would want to work with me. She didn't know me or anything. So she sent a proposal through her agent to my agent. And it was three pages long, single space, that's all it was. And um, my agent only said to me, can you take a look at this? And so I, she didn't tell me anything else. So the first thing I did was look up Marie. And I saw that she wrote these wonderful books of women lost in history. But then I saw a picture of Marie, and then I wondered if she had ever seen a picture of me. <laughs> because what in the world? What, why would you want to write a book with me? Um, and so then I said, maybe I should just kind of go ahead and read it. <laughs> well, I couldn't get past the second paragraph of the first page. First of all, it was single space. And then the second thing was, the first page was about J.P. Morgan. I wasn't interested in J.P. Morgan. I write books called Lust and Stand Your Ground. I, wasn't, I had no clue what this was. So I kept reading, putting it aside, reading, putting, never got past the first page. My agent kept calling me, saying, and I was like, oh, I'm so busy. Finally, she called, she said, like three months later, my agent said, nobody's that busy. It's three pages, read it. So I forced myself, I really did. The first page, J.P. Morgan, I almost fell asleep, you know. The second page got more interesting. It was about Belle de Costa Green. And I was like, okay, this is, I don't know who she is, but this, the last page, last paragraph said, no one knew that Belle de Costa Green was black until she passed away. I was like, are you kidding me? We could have saved three months and three pages <laughs> if she had just written that paragraph. I would have been in three months ago. And I went to the phone. I couldn't get to the phone fast enough. Yeah. And that's how we came together. But yeah. we almost didn't because of me. And reading is fundamental. I should have read the whole thing. <laughs> and so we got together. And Marie and I have become, I was telling everyone earlier, like such like sisters. Because you cannot write these kinds of books about race and not have these kinds of deep discussions. And I've never had discussions on race with anyone in the world like I have with Marie. Because with my black friends, if I tell them something that happened to me today, they're like, okay, that happened to me yesterday. It does, you know. And then with my white friends, I don't want to spend the time yeah. talking about that. I just, I want to be friends. I don't want to spend the time talking about that. But with Marie and I, this is our job, you know, talking about it and learning about it. And so that's how we got together. And we, um, this is our second novel together. We've signed the contract for our third one. We already have the idea of our fourth one, so. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. In a side life, one of the things my husband and I have done is we've restored. And we've uh, re restored a cinema in Stamford, Connecticut called the Avon. It's an hour outside of New York. And many years ago, it was like 14-ish, when 
the first conversation using the term Black Lives Matter came along, we got together at the Avon and we thought, well, you know, we're people of a certain age, we're not really protesters, but what can we do to mm. enter into this conversation? What we can do is have a forum. Yeah. And we created a series called The Black Lens. And mm. it's been fabulous. We, it's moderated by a very close friend of mine called Harriet Cole, who's a, a black female American writer. And she, uh, we've had conversations about the most interesting range of movies. And the idea is that have a conversation. Have a conversation. Do it in a movie theater and do it around a movie. And, and then uh, it's a safe space because yeah. when Marie and I first wrote The Personal Librarian, we thought we were just writing a book about this famous woman. Mm -hmm. But when we went on tour, people, while they loved The Personal Librarian, they were more interested in the two of us. And we're like, really? We're not even that interesting. But we were to people because people didn't wanted to know they could look at us and see we were close and they knew we had to have some deep conversations. And so it was then that we realized, wow, we're not just writing books. We have a mission here. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we want to do is to provide people with an opportunity to have the same kinds of conversations and friendships that we've developed. So that's why this was our second choice, the First Lady because there were two women in history who had the same kind of friendship Marie and I have. We like to say this book is a little semi-autobiographical <laughs> because when they were talking about friendship stuff, our editor said, make sure you, make, you, know, you talk about what they would do as friends. So Marie and I said, okay, what do we talk about? We talk about food. We talk about losing weight. We talk about clothes. We talk, so we just threw our conversations yeah. in there. Yeah. And then, but then we had the mistakes in here. We had the challenges of being of an interracial friendship in here, conversations that Marie and I've had to have. And when we go out, we tell people that this is our mission now. We want to, this is our gift, to give people a chance to have these kinds of conversations in the safe, space of fiction. And so right. you're doing the same thing with Both film. Yeah. So let's talk about writing with another person. It's very different from writing on your own. How did you and Marie come to a, a, even a process of yeah. how the heck you do that? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because I'd rather write with her than without her. Really? I'm writing my first solo historical fiction now. And last night, Marie and I did a virtual event together. And she said, it's not solo. I'm all in her business. And it's true. <laughs> She's doing, you know, I'm not writing a harlot. But I, you know, I had written a book with another writer before. So Marie had not. And when we came together, she was like, OK, so what do we do? What are the rules? How do we do it? And that's because she's an attorney by trade. Right. So everything is like, dun, dun, dun you know, flow charts, right. she has deadlines. I don't believe in a deadline. That's just a suggestion. That's not a, the, and so, but she believes in it. So we were coming from two different spaces, but she trusted me because I'd done it before. And I told her there's no rules. There's no rules to this. Let's kind of do it as we go along. And so now it's so funny to hear her speak about it because she tells people, oh, it just comes together. Uh, but that's what it is because in the personal librarian, it wasn't that much different than in the first ladies. We take chunks of the book and we talk about it first. 
So we say, well, where do we want to start? And we, you know, we talked about the scene, and, and um, we talked about how it affected Marie when she first learned that that's how they met in this book, and how it didn't affect me. You know? Yeah. It, it, was, just, yeah. it was just last Tuesday for me. But how it was a defining moment for Marie. Like, she hated that with everything in her. Right. Um, and so we talked that through. And then with the personal librarian, it just depended on what the chapter was. If it was about art and history, Marie would write that chapter first. And then if it was about her Belle and her family, I would write the chapter first. And then we would switch. And so then we could edit each other's and put our own words in, because we have different strengths. Marie had been a historical fiction writer, and I was a contemporary fiction writer. So there were times when I wanted to have Belle say to J.P. Morgan, what's up, dude? And that didn't work in the early 20th century language. And so she would kind of put her magic historical brush and say, dude is not going to work. Uh, but then I'm a contemporary fiction writer. I wrote a book called Lust. And so in, for example, in The Personal Librarian, the first time Bernard and Belle got together, Marie wrote that scene. And the scene was something like, and this is no exaggeration, they kissed, they went into the hotel room, and the next sentence said, and they woke up to the rising sun. And I was no. No, that's not going to work. We don't have to show it all the time, but we're going to have to show it the first time. And so I did that part, which Marie is always so quick to tell people, especially her parents. Victoria wrote that, not me. She tells everybody that all the time. So, but it, so we switch going back yeah. and forth constantly. In this book, it was a little clearer. Um, I wrote Mary's chapters first, and she wrote Eleanor's chapters first, but the same thing. We would switch and add in stuff and take out stuff. and So every word of every book is us together. It's extraordinary, because I, I have spoken to Beatrice Williams and Karen mm -hmm. White and Lauren Willig, and they mm -hmm. write separately and together. Mm -hmm. And they kind of round robin. They each take either a voice or a time period. Mm -hmm. Uh, depending on what the how the book is divided, yeah. and then they just send chapters to each mm -hmm. other, which is sort of an old-fashioned kind of fascinating thing. So, but you two definitely first, you yeah. take one character or another. Yeah, well, see, with the personal librarian, it was one only one character. Oh, it was only yes. one character. So, if we ever write a book where it's one character, doesn't it doesn't matter because. We talk out every scene. No scene will come into a book without us both talking about it first. So by the time we sit down to write, we know a lot about what's going to go in the scene. Mm -hmm. And um, then we, we put in so many things for each other. Um, can I give you an example I yes. Was, yes. of something that, because here was an example of a racial thing that yeah. we didn't know that we had. So in the first scene, we've already talked about how they met and um, how Marie was so upset. She really was. From her heart, she hated the idea that a black woman that she now admired had to go through that. Yeah. For me, it wasn't, it really wasn't uh, too big a deal. 
So I wrote that scene, and then a, there's another scene that happens like two years later, in a, a little while later, and I wrote the scene, and then I sent it to Marie the way we always do it. And when it came back, it had a line added, something like, oh, well, the scene was, Mary is now in Daytona Beach in front of a different group of white people who are celebrating her. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote that scene, and these are her friends. And Marie added a line that said, if those white women in New York could see me now. So I took it out. I don't know why, I just took it out. So then we go, you know, we're still writing and writing and writing, and the scenes go back and forth a lot. And when I, it came back to me, that line was back in it. So I was thinking, wow, I'm a woman of a fantastic age, so I forget everything. I thought I had taken it out. And so I, you know, took it out. Because I was like, I can't believe I didn't take it out. And so again, two, three months later, it comes back to me, it's back in there. And I'm like, I gotta stop this multitasking because I'm thinking I'm taking it out, seriously. It took four times before I realized Marie is putting it back in. Because yeah. I was just thinking things were getting mixed up. But then I wanted to know why did she want that line in? Yeah. And why did I want it out? But I couldn't call her until I could define why I wanted it out. I didn't know why I wanted it out. Just, it was just instinct that didn't fit. And when I figured it out, I called Marie. And we talk about this a lot, um, because when I called her up and I said, that line has got to come out. And she said, I just want you to know, I just put it back in. Um, and I said, it has to come out because that happened two years before. And Mary, as a black woman, cannot think about something that happened two years before. Because since that time, 18,740 other microaggressions have happened to her. And if she were to focus on each and every one, she'll never move forward. Mm -hmm. We don't, we have to allow it to just roll off our back so we can move forward. And Marie was, she, she said it was such a defining moment for her again, mm -hmm. because she said that with all the conversations we'd had about race, that was the first time she felt the weight of it that we didn't even, these are her words, that we didn't have the privilege to be upset, to be upset by something that should have hurt us. Mm -hmm. um, because we have to keep it in, or she, Mary would become the angry black woman or all of these other stereotypes, and so she just had to move on. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big learning thing for both of us, because I didn't even know why I wanted it out. Right. I didn't even, but I knew, I, I knew it, it shouldn't be in there. I didn't yeah. know why until I thought about it. And so, and so those are, that's not a disagreement, that's coming to an understanding, but that's how we write together. Well, and it's kind of extraordinary that what you're saying is that in this, this one little line became clarifying it became for both, both of, of us. It was clarifying for you yeah. of putting the words to why did it feel false. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and <laughs> Marie said that every time she, she realized I was taking it out. I didn't realize that she was putting it in. <laughs> but she said she kept every time putting it back in saying, why doesn't Victoria know that M Mary's upset? 
Mm -hmm. Because she had, Marie has the privilege to be upset. I didn't have the privilege to be upset. That, that is really extraordinary, what you just said. And I'm going to bring it from race a little bit to um, the male-female dynamics. The women, Because yes. each of the women, both Eleanor and Mary, have issues with their husbands and react differently. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about it, and I'm going to let you talk, obviously. But we have made such a journey as women in what we tolerate and what we don't tolerate. And uh, what a 25-year-old today will tolerate is very different mm -hmm. from when Mm -hmm. we, were, we were 25. It's just a whole different thing. But will you talk in, in the specific about each of the protagonists and their marriages? Yeah, because, you know, this is something I didn't know. We all kind of had heard stories about Eleanor Roosevelt, but I didn't know that by the time FDR got to the White House, they were not living as husband and wife. Yeah. In fact, she had somebody, she had a friend that had a room there yeah, she had a friend that had their own room next to hers, so you got to read the book if you want to know about that. Uh, that wasn't that interesting. I yes. mean, I didn't know about that. Yeah. And apparently a lot of people knew about it. I didn't know. Um, and so she had already, because when Eleanor found out that FDR cheated on her with her, a really dear friend, it destroyed her. Um, but at the same time, it almost defined her because she was like, I will, she wanted a divorce, but Sarah, who was like the third person in the marriage, Sarah said, no, you can't get a divorce because one day he's going to be president and nobody would vote for a man who's divorced, so you're going to stay here, but you can have your own life. And so that's when she started having her own life. So Eleanor was kind of dictated by all of the rules of society, you know, no divorce, none of that. So Mary has almost the same exact situation, betrayed by a very good friend, I think one of the first teachers um, at the school. She finds the woman in bed with her husband in her bed. Like, I just can't even imagine. And they lived. Like, I just can't <laughs> even. Both of them lived. And, you know, I just can't imagine. Because you someplace else, but not in my bed. No. <laughs> and uh, so no one ever heard from her husband again. Like, there was, most people, if you even Google what happened to Mary's husband, all it says is that um, he abandoned the family. And I had to find out from her grandson what really happened. He disappeared. I mean, not, not that way. No, he, <laughs> no, no. She, she said, leave and never come back. Right. And he left the next morning and never came back. And she didn't. She kept his name. She kept everything. And she, when people started asking, well, whatever happened? She didn't answer. And they were like, oh, he abandoned her. And she let that story go. Right, right. So and that's a tidbit that you're only going to get in the book. Because <laughs> even Google is wrong. So was that act of betrayal more defining for Eleanor than it was oh, for Mary? That's a good question. 
And I would say it was. I think the re I don't want to say it was easy because I don't know Mary McLeod Bethune's thoughts or feelings. I had to extrapolate it to put it mm. in the book. Um, but I have a feeling that Mary's greatest love was her race. And that she was in the struggle for her race. And nothing was going to come between her and educating black girls, making sure black people could vote. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan marched on her campus with all those girls there. And she went out to meet them. She went out to meet them because nothing was going to come between her and her race. And so I'm not saying that she didn't love her husband, but it wasn't the same. I right. believe. It I didn't believe. break her. To it didn't break degree. her. It didn't break her. It was like, okay, good. This gives me more time to focus on this. Mm -hmm. With Eleanor, it broke her. Yeah. It broke her. She loved him. Um, and, and it was just the ultimate betrayal. I know it's time to go to questions from the audience, but one thing I w thought you might want to talk a little bit about, each of the women had, you know, well, a child and a grandchild, or children and grandchildren, and that's a complicated role mm. for a, a woman, a man. You know, we are who we are. We're mm -hmm. working on what we're working on. Our children are not us. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about a little of that with each yeah. of these women? So with Mary, so here's the difference. I think with Eleanor, the marriage, you know, was the most important thing. I think Mary's relationship with her grandson, especially, mm -hmm. was even closer than Eleanor could ever get because her grandson was the product of her son leaving college and going to moving to Florida and having an affair with a white woman, and Mary was sure the Klan was going to come and kill them both. And so she went, made sure he brought that six-month-old baby home to her, and then she raised her grandson as if he were her son, mm -hmm. as if he were her son. And um, she, that was her second, second to her race, or it was close, that was her love. Her grandson was her love. And I hope that comes through in the book. It does, very strongly. Yeah, and so with, with Eleanor, I think it was more the typical role, you know. I'm, there's Sarah's there, and she's doing some stuff, and I'm going to do some stuff, and Franklin's going to do some stuff, where Mary had to be everything for this little boy that she was going to protect at all costs from all the racial things that he had to endure. And she wasn't able to protect him one time, and as you can see in the book. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. Uh, bring it to all of you. I know you're going to have questions about this book, any and, book. Any writing, book. And, and this is my favorite part, is, is answering questions. So if you don't start asking, I'm going to call on you. Yes. <laughs> See? Thank you. Two books that while I was reading, I didn't want to read because I didn't want them to be over. Oh, thank you. Beautifully written. Thank you. 
and I'm so excited to hear you. The question, of course, in Personal Librarian was, did J.P. Morgan know that Bella was a black woman? Yeah, that's a and question. And if you had been Bella, would you have ever admitted that you were? I yeah. thought those were profound questions. Questions, good thing. Good questions. We don't know if, if J.P. Morgan knew. Um, it, it's not like he was sitting in the room and people were talking about rumors because he was the most powerful man in the world. He was more powerful than the president. He saved the country a couple of times. So it's not like people were, you know, gossiping with him saying, hey, we hear she might be black. You know, that wasn't that kind of thing. But if he heard anything, I wonder what he, you know, would have done. He could have either, I think it was one of two things. He could have just blown everything for her because he would have felt bamboozled and, you know, that she, or he could have said, she's black, she's white now. I'm J.P. Morgan. Ah, she white. You know. So it could have been that. Your other question is really interesting. If I had been Belle, would I have told? If I had been Belle, I would have done the same thing she did, which was take it to my grave because it was dangerous to let anyone know that you had been passing. People were lynched for that. And then it wouldn't just destroy her life. It would destroy her whole family's life. So I would have done the same thing because it wasn't just about her. If she ever came out, everybody and their children would be destroyed. In fact, um, next year, 2024, the Morgan is going to be doing a special, um, a special in commemorative thing because it's the 100th anniversary of the library being public. And it would have never been public without Belle. And so not only are they going to recognize that a woman put it together, because they didn't do that for many years, they're going to recognize, they're going to celebrate a black woman. Mm making the J.P. Morgan Library what it is today. Wow. And so I'm so excited about it. So they have gone out to try to find everything they could about Belle and her family. Well, to tell it very quickly, um, Belle, none of her siblings had children. Because anybody who's black knows you can't have kids when you're passing. Because you don't know what the child is going to come out and is going to look like. The only one that had children was the youngest one, Teddy the youngest girl, because she didn't even know, she had never grown up as a black. She had never, she had no memory of that. And if you remember, she had blonde hair, blue eyes, and she had children. And she had a son by the name of Bobby, who Belle ended up adopting, because Teddy's husband got killed in World War I. She had a nervous breakdown. Belle always wanted to have children. We were going to put it in a book. We tried to put it in a book, but too much stuff. You'd have to tell too much. Um, with it, but Belle adopted him. She wasn't good because her thing was the library. She wasn't a good mother. But we know that Bobby died in World War One. Well, I mean World War Two. We under mysterious circumstances. Well, we just found out through the Morgan Library that he committed suicide, and and he committed it over in Europe, and he committed suicide because he discovered he was black. He, he presented as white. And that's something that we just found out afterwards. So that's why she would have never told. So I have a question on that. Um, my last book deals in a very small family story with a 
generational trauma. My mother's best friend was murdered. It had an effect on me. I fictionalized it in the novel. But there are larger cultural sweeps of generational trauma, and certainly what was done to black people in America falls under that mm -hmm. large cultural category. And they're doing studies of things, you know, epigenetics and, mm -hmm. and how this affects us yeah. at a cellular level. And I, a question, comment, I just feel that the more we look at this, the better it will be for all of us yeah. to look at it more openly because we aren't just affected by what happens from the day we're born. Yeah, we're affected by so much. So much more. And you know what's so interesting? Um, under that privilege thing of holding it in, not being able to let it out, mm -hmm. that Maurice explained that, you know, that we hold it in. Um, one of the things in the book, without giving anything away, is Mary gets sick. And after Marie and I had that conversation, I wonder how many diseases that black people carry yeah. um, because of all the stuff right. that we're holding in that we're thinking this is the right way to handle it. Right. And it's not, perhaps. I think these are very big and very important subjects that we need, yeah. we need to look at. And because Mary's illness plays a big part in the book. Yeah. I wanted to say I loved um, the personal librarian. I'm sort of halfway through um, the second book, and I really en enjoy it. I'm curious about your background. You mentioned that you got an MBA from Stern. Um, how did you come to be an author, and what was the impetus for doing so? Yeah, how did I become? I've always wanted to be an author. Like, I came out of my mother's womb knowing I was going to be a writer. <laughs> like, honestly. And in fact, I wrote my very first masterpiece when I was seven years old. And I'll, see, y'all all laugh. Let me tell you why it was a masterpiece. It was a masterpiece because I plagiarized all the masterpieces out there. <laughs> I wrote something called Betty and the Witch. And it was about a little girl who wore a red uniform with a hood to school. <laughs> she had three bears who were her brothers, and three pigs were her sisters. And their best friends were seven people that lived next door. <laughs> And everybody's laughing, except it was a really good thing that I wrote. It really was. It was so good. I, you know, I gave it to my parents, of course. It was my first book, so I wanted you know, my parents to know about it. And my parents gave it to my teacher. And she had the entire second grade perform it as a play. And I always say to people, because for years I looked for her when I first became an author, I just wanted to tell her, that was the, be I knew I was going to be an author from then. I didn't know how to get there, but I always knew I was going to be an author. And that's why, we're, and I was never able to find her. And so I always ask, are there any teachers in the room? Because I wow, always want to say, thank you. Thank you. And so I didn't, I know I took an unlikely road because I didn't know, when I was growing up, I didn't meet any authors. I certainly didn't see any black authors, but I knew I was going to be an author. Um, I didn't know how to get there. But because I knew it from the time I wrote that masterpiece, I bet y'all won't laugh anymore because it was a masterpiece. Um, I knew I was going to be an author. I just knew it. I have a question. Yes. You mentioned there's two more books that you and Marie are working on. Can you tell us anything about I can't to come? yet. Okay. You know, we just um, got our, age, our uh, editor to agree on one. 
Um, and so she's just going to take it to the people um, at the top because they kind of like us now. You know, these books I, are selling. I would guess, yeah. yeah. And so she's taking it to um, them. But I think you're going to uh, like it. Again, it's going to be a safe place to have these conversations. But um, I, I, I'll say this. It may have something to do. It's going to have something to do with people you know. And you're going to be like, what? And it's gonna have some, it has something to do with the publishing industry. Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. All right, we have time for one more question. Oh, I go. hate it, and this is my favorite part. Hi. Um, so I'm interested to know, and I have a reason for asking this, but I guess since we're being broadcast, I'm not going to say what it is. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, I'm curious. Do you feel that you or Marie could have written the book by yourself? Are we ah. at a place in the world where we need the perspective of a person from a given circumstance in order to tell their story? Or can a person still do research and yeah. speak to their friends and be able to portray another type another, of life? Yeah. Um, I'm just curious Great. how you feel about Great that. Great question, because the book that Marie read of mine that brought us together, I wrote from two perspectives. I wrote about, um, I, it was a, a young teenage black boy that gets shot by a white man. And so I wrote it from the perspective of the black mother and the white wife and how they end up coming together. Um, I love that book. That's my favorite book of, of my books that I wrote by myself. And so I wrote that without a white author, but I had a white editor who really worked with me on the voice. Um, I, I, think you, I think there are little nuances. Like if Marie were writing The First Ladies by herself, she would have had that line in there. She would have had that line in there where she would have said, I wish those women could see me now, because that's her, the white eye, you know, lens. Um, and now she would never put a line like that in there. I think you need both. Um, the more I work with Marie, the more every time I sit down by myself, I'm like, what am I doing? Where's Marie? Um, I, think, I think to tell the best and the most complete story, you need both. What, is, what do you think? Um, I, my, my son is a screenwriter. He wrote a screenplay from the perspective of a biracial woman. He's a white man. Mm -hmm. um, the... Uh, Producers ask him to rewrite it from the perspective of a white man based on what they felt was the audience who would be receiving the movie as opposed to more of the fact. But I, it, it just got me thinking as yeah. I was thinking. And then he was asked to pitch a live action remake of a Japanese anime and they asked him to bring on a Japanese woman to write with him. Yeah. So the I industry is definitely changing a lot and I was just curious what your perspective, like I'm just wondering, is he not able to then maybe write that any longer? Can he not write from the perspective, even if he does the research, even if he talks to people? I think he people, can do it. I think he can do it, but I think, you know, they have sensitivity readers now. Um, and things like that that I think is necessary because of the little tiny nuances that make a difference, that really make mm -hmm. a difference. I'm going to give an example. Uh, there was a book that came out a few years ago by Emma Klein called Girls. I loved the book, but I'm a woman of a certain age, and Emma Klein brilliantly wrote this young woman. But is a, at a certain point in the book, she becomes an older woman, 
And she felt like a cipher to me. She felt like a young person's. It's, it's a subtle criticism so of the tiny. book. I wouldn't write it in, a, in a, the New York Times. But this, as an older woman, she was so, to me, unusually fixated on the lives of these young people who happened to be in a house with her. And I'm thinking, no, nah, we're not that interested yeah, yeah. in you. We're just not. We're not. Um, tiny thing. A small part of the book didn't ruin the book, but in that case, I, I'm gonna I would put money on the fact that her editor was really young too. Would have been just a tiny, tiny improvement thing. there if somebody read it who was a little bit older and was like, yeah, no, you're not that interesting. And it's the tiny thing. Yeah. Because I'm not saying that he can't do it because I think writing is a gift, and I think you're mm -hmm. able to do things that because it's the imagination. I mean, people write about science fiction and they've never met aliens. Well, mate, you know? I mean, seriously. So, um, and I'm being serious about that. <laughs> but, um, or I wrote about being in Dubai and I hadn't been to Dubai at that point. But I do think it's the little tiny things, like you're saying, that can just make it, take it up a notch. And then I just think working with someone, even if it's a sensitivity reading, I think will help. But I don't think you, he should say, no, I can't do these anymore. Because some, we're not all out there telling the stories, and the stories need to be told. Yeah, and you can't have a screenplay or a novel with you know, 15 middle-aged white women or yeah. 15, 25-year-old black men. I mean, yeah. writers do have to be able to write a multiplicity of characters. but. Yeah, so I think yeah. so. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Victoria. Now, before before you go, before everybody goes, would you mind if I took a picture of you? I just learned how to do pano. Have you seen it on the phone? No, I don't know how to do it. You don't know how to do it? Wait till I show you. Show it's me. the coolest thing. Okay. So I, Marie and I learned how to do it. And so we've been taking pictures of all the audiences, holding up the book. Hold up the book. It is the coolest thing. You've got to learn how to do panel. Face it. Face it to us. OK, you ready? Here we go. And so I hit this, and then I just move it. Isn't this cool? I mean, look. Wait till I show you the picture. You're not going to believe this picture. And then this is the picture. See what I'm saying? <laughs> I learned something today. Oh, I learned many thank things. You. Thank you all. <laughs> thank you. That was Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House Author Series highlighting nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories.